0: Welcome to the Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week, where every Saturday we discuss the biggest news stories of the week with Portland's noisiest newsmakers, savviest culturistas, and some of the best journalists in the game. I'm your host, Brianna Wheeler, and I want to hear from you. So send your questions and comments to me, bwheeler at wweek.com. All right, y'all, enjoy the show. Did you know that Astoria the sleepy coastal Oregon town founded by a fur trader named John Jacob Astor in 1811 is the oldest American settlement west of the Rockies. Side note, colonizers are like the least creative town namers, right? Fuck. Anywho, long before the uninspired fur trader John Astor rolled up to the breathtaking confluence of the Columbia River in the Pacific Ocean, that whole breadth of oceanfront countryside was Chinook territory. Those communities have recorded histories reaching back hundreds of thousands of generations, and shipwrecks are a part of that history. So much so that now, thousands of years later, many still obsess over the details of those 3,000 plus wrecks, and the hidden coves that may or may not contain them have become the stuff of Oregon lore. This week... Me and my guest, Doug Kink Crispin of kick-ass Oregon history, will examine one of the most prolific mysteries of the coastal territory, the beeswax wreck, whose thrilling tale is not only the source material for the Goonies, but whose most recent discoveries may paint a clearer history of one of Oregon's most legendary and mysterious shipwrecks. It's Saturday, August 6th. And this is episode 83 of The Dive. On today's episode, Doug Kink Crispin and I will unpack his contribution to this week's Weird Summer Tales cover package, Cave of Wonders, wherein a forgotten Spanish galleon washes ashore in Astoria, possibly solving the age old mystery of what's up with all this beeswax on the shore? And wait a minute, the Goonies is based on a real shipwreck? Before Doug and I chat about pirates, colonizers, and the native narrative of buried treasures, please allow me to share a few things I learned from this week's edition of Willamette Week. The Black Resilience Fund began accepting applications for an initiative to provide 50 Black families with a basic income of $2,000 a month for three years. This program is a part of Brown Hope. A nonprofit founded by activist Cameron Witten, whose work in Portland's black community has been prolific. More than 7,500 people applied in the first 24 hours of the program going live, and hopefully its success will shake up the status quo and create some much needed opportunity for the families who apply and are accepted. It's been 242 days since the Taft Home for Low Income, High Risk, Disabled Seniors closed and the Portland Housing Bureau still has not established a timeline for its reopening. Sophie Peel reports that, despite the city having a considerable say in what happens to the Taft, the building remains shuttered, and the city remains tight-lipped about its status. Word is Bond is a nonprofit that stages a poetry workshop to empower young Black men ages 16 to 21 and bring them together with law enforcement. Both the cops and the young men's works have been collected in the anthology, Picture Me Thriving. Rachel Saslau reports that you can get your copies at mywordisbond.org. Now, let's get into my chat with Doug Kink Crispin about the beeswax shipwreck and the cave of wonders. So for the uninitiated, what exactly is the beeswax wreck?
1: Well, the beeswax wreck is kind of a kind of an enigma for over 300 years. Big chunks of beeswax have been floating up onto the Oregon coast, kind of around the Nehalem area, kind of um, uh, by the Neokone Mountains. So, you know, by the state parks there, kind of Oswald State Park area, and kind of a little further south. Um, A lot of beeswax and broken shards of Chinese porcelain have been just found along the beach. For hundreds of years. I mean, by Native folks before the American European colonizers came here, but then also by them. If you go to the museum in Tillamook, the History Museum there, they have some big chunks of the beeswax. Uh, There's a photo of one in the the article that I wrote, Cave of Wonders. Um, Salem Public Library has a big old chunk of beeswax. So they're just kind of around. They've just kind of been folded into kind of our Oregon consciousness. Even before Oregon was a political identity known as a territory or state. This beeswax has kind of been around. So the question is, where did it come from? Now, kind of concurrently with this story are these just fantastic stories of treasure that are buried Kind of in the same area. I mean, actually, exactly in the same area. Mm-hmm. And these stories, as well, have been around long before Oregon was a state. You know, Native peoples had talked about um, what would appear to be, you know, European ships coming to the coast of Oregon, and then maybe bringing chests, maybe burying a body. Um, you know, just all kinds of just really weird treasure shit, you know, and I mean, one way to interpret it, as Scott Williams said, is, you know, if you're some hayseed farmer from Ohio that just moved out to Oregon to kind of start pioneering things and, you know, you hear these stories, of course, you're thinking pirate treasure, you know, sure. but maybe there's a different tale. So nonetheless, this is kind of the introduction, you know, there's kind of this physical evidence that keeps washing up on the shore And then there's also these kind of treasure legends that kind of get commingled, right? These two incidents. And, you know, what the article is about is kind of another piece of information that, uh, that, you know, this team may have found about the origin of whatever it was that was carrying all of this beeswax. So that's kind of the beeswax business.
0: What? else is being retrieved from that wreck that's got that idea of like real treasure percolating
1: well the answer to that is not much um you know it's it's definitely a lot of shipwreck material you know detritus debris that's kind of left over um but in terms of you know um when I think of treasure again, like I said in the article, I'm thinking Goonie shit, you know, yeah. I'm thinking like, like Rubies. silver gold and gold cards. and yeah. some <laughs> jewels and just put on my necklaces and drink from a silver chalice. Yes. You know, Goblets. that yes is treasure, you know, <laughs> whereas when I spoke with Scott Williams, who's in, in charge of the program, you know, he's like, well, you know, there might've been some carved ivory or something like that. I'm like, yeah, oh. right. like How much? <laughs> 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 Will it fit in the chest? This carved ivory. So, so, yeah, there there is not a lot of physical evidence with this specific shipwreck that uh, these investigators believe that they've kind of you know that they've kind of narrowed in some more information on. So essentially, what happened is in two thousand and eighteen. Uh, Scott Williams, who is an archaeologist, and he is the head of the Maritime Archaeological Society, which is a group based out of Astoria. And, you know, they've been really kind of geeking out on this story for 16 years and trying to find uh, what was going on with all this beeswax business. So some of the beeswax um, has been examined, and the Tillamook History uh, Museum has a placard that identifies the pollen that was used within the beeswax was from the Philippines. Um, So that's some pretty intriguing information there. And so they began looking at uh, the Maritime Archaeological Society, began looking at kind of how this beeswax would have come to the shore of the United States. What we know is now is the United States. Of course, then it wasn't. And, you know, there was this massive maritime trade uh, for Spain. And what they would do is one of their colonies, of course, was the Philippines. They would gather items in the Philippines, things like spices, things like, you know, this Japanese uh, ivory, Chinese porcelain, silks. And one of the big things was Beeswax, as they would use the wax uh, uh, for essentially a lot of their uh, Catholic ceremonies for candles and things like that. Ooh. So they okay. would they had this massive trade. So they would load up all of these goods in. The Philippines, and then essentially they would sail east across the Pacific. And what's going to happen when you sail east across the Pacific? You're going to bump into what we now consider the coast of California, mm-hmm. right? And so you're going to go down south until you get to Acapulco, and then you're going to load all of those goods overland, right, to where another ship takes them back to Spain. Mm -hmm. So then the ship that came from the Philippines is going to load back up with silver, with lead, for other items that the colonizers need in the Philippines, but also items to kind of help spread Catholicism, right, within their colonies, mm -hmm. right? This was a very Catholic-focused trade. So all those items go back and forth. So these are—this is a trip— That really takes like a year for it to commence. And these ships are huge. You know, they're kind of comparable for that era to our super cargo ships, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, these are massive ships that can maybe hold, you know, 40 to 100 tons of beeswax, you know, and then everything else that is involved on top of it. So because they were so valuable, Scott Williams detailed that the Spanish kept just kind of impeccable records on these ships right and Mm -hmm. then during this time frame they only lost four of these ships because when one of these ships sunk it was a huge financial loss so they really wanted to kind of recover whatever they can salvage from those ships so they really really looked and kind of during that time there was really only one that made sense of the four that were missing there were only four that were unaccounted for and that was the santo cristo de burgos and that ship, uh, you know, left the Philippines in 1693 It was never seen again. So the problem that Scott has with this theory is that the ship... Oregon is, like, really, really far north from where these ships should have been. Typically, you know, when they come out of their Pacific transit, they're going to land at what we now know as Monterey Bay, Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe a little further south and then head down to Acapulco. Like, maybe, maybe, maybe San Francisco Mm -hmm. area, you know, as we call it today. Um, But the Oregon coast is really, really far north. Yeah. So that's... But again, there's all of this physical evidence. Uh, you know, there's some historical accounts. There's actually um, there was a tsunami that happened right around 1700 oh. that they feel uh, was involved in the in helping to date this ship as well. Mm-hmm. That the wreckage could have been covered uh, by a lot of the the the. the sand and the silt and that sort of thing and really kind of preserved a lot of this Mm -hmm. and that you know that this kind of maybe slowly breaking up like the wreck is likely right off the coast they just don't know where
0: what is the earliest story of um of a wreck happening off the oregon coast and because it has to, I mean, you just said that it, it predates colonization.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's Native peoples. Native peoples have talked about that. Now, if, if we go back to the historical record, you know, of course, I mean, this, let's talk about air quote discovery, right? Sure. Uh, so, so Native peoples have been living on the Oregon coast around the mouth of the Columbia and so on for, you know thousands of years they they say that they've been living here since day one since the earth was created so Mm -hmm. let's just go with somewhere there right um in 1579 Sir Francis Drake circumnavigated the globe and there's some thought among historians that he may have come as far north as Oregon. So we're talking later than that, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, there have been over 3000 shipwrecks that have, you know, either sunk or wrecked along the Oregon coast. So there's a lot of kind of historical fodder that can really feed into, you know, we, we, have a lot of documentation that can feed into a lot of these native native histories that have been around for for much longer than the documentation right so Mm -hmm. so it's really quite some time that there have been stories of of ships wrecking along the oregon coast uh one of the members of the uh maritime archaeological society is a gentleman named craig Andes, and he's a commercial fisherman and he's a beachcomber too. And he likes to walk along the beach and look for chunks of beeswax and porcelain and all kinds of other, you know, you've been to the beach, you find some cool shit out sure. on the Oregon coast. So that's what, that, That's what Craig's into. And in 2013, he found a cave uh, that was a really treacherous location. So people listening to this should not attempt to find said cave if uh, they dig through the media reports, including uh, Cave of Wonders in this week's Malama Week, you will notice that nobody's talking about specifically where this cave is. And there are a few reasons: it's a very treacherous location. One, and two, it's an archaeological site where there could be other treasures, and so they want to. Well, treasure—I'm I mean, not going to use that word. The, uh, there could be other pieces of a ship, <laughs> other discoveries <laughs> right. to be made. Right. Um, so. So 2013, Craig found um, these timbers in this really inaccessible cave that he felt were from a shipwreck, perhaps this Spanish galleon that was lost in 1693. So he covered them up with sand and kind of put some rocks on them and things like that because, um, you know, they're pretty waterlogged. I think that it's it was just an extremely low tide that he found them. Mm-hmm. And then he would kind of keep checking back in on them over the years. And so around 2020, uh, he kind of let his discovery be known to uh, to the other members of the Maritime uh, Archaeological Group, and uh, they decided to stage a recovery of them. So, uh, as we said, the, the, the uh, access point to the cave is very treacherous can only be accessed during extremely low tides and they wanted that to be during the daytime so as you know with the tide records they kind of had to wait they had to get a lot of permits they had to have a lot of uh different state agencies involved as it is on a state park Mm. um you know they needed to have uh search and rescue teams ready to go because essentially they had 90 minutes to get inside the cave recover what they could and get the heck out before it became really, really dangerous. So uh, this was a real, um, a real coordinated effort that took months and months to put together. And of course, COVID kind of stretched that into years, right? Tides, everything else. So eventually on June 14th, Uh, The team got together and they went inside the cave. And I believe that they were, uh, it states in the the article, but I think there were about 20 pieces that they brought out that they thought were from this ship. Um, Some of the pieces, they, they brought out more pieces, right? and some of them they eventually decided were driftwood and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. but there are 20 that due to the square holes that they have in them or so on they are they know it's from a shipwreck and it may be from this shipwreck that they are thinking of specifically, right? The Spanish Galleon from 1693. So more work needs to be done um, to do some carbon dating. They also want to send pieces of the ship or um, 3D scans of them, probably more, more likely, um, to experts in the Philippines or maybe in Spain and just kind of, hey, does this look like it might have been from a ship that was built in the 1650s? kind of thing so they're just trying to gather more information but really what this info this isn't it's new data to the discussion, but it doesn't really change what was already kind of the hypothesis of the group from 2018, that this was this specific Spanish galleon that went missing in 1693 and drifted, you know, off the Oregon coast where it wrecked. That is still kind of the same argument, and they're hoping that these timbers that they recovered will help to reinforce that uh, hypothesis.
0: Mm-hmm now where did you first hear about this story had you been following the story of the potential new discoveries
1: i don't know i probably heard about this story like 15 years ago or something like that i picked up this um this uh yellow book at goodwill um, from the nineteen early 1970s. It was called Treasure Hunting the Pacific Northwest or something like that. And it was written by a woman named Ruby L. Holt. And she had just kind of compiled a lot of these Oregon stories, you know, of, or Pacific Northwest stories about these these treasure hoards. And uh, this Neakane treasure was in there, which is essentially, you know, a ship appeared off the coast or maybe it wrecked off the coast. And whoever was on that ship kind of buried this treasure. And, you know, there was this evidence. So I started kind of looking into it. And again, you know, we're kind of talking, we're going back in our timeline here. um, But, you know, Astoria, the city of Astoria was essentially founded in 1811. I believe it's the oldest city uh, west of the Mississippi. And eighteen eleven, it was just kind of a little fort with a lot of fur traders. Well, what were those those guys doing when they weren't trading? They were going down to Neakane looking for this treasure, right? So kind of like really from the very beginning of, of of uh the colonialization that happened here, this story has kind of been enmeshed within it. So so it's it's really one that once you get into it and then you start looking back. You can look back as far as you want in the historical written record, and you can find these, these, these intriguing little threads, you know, to kind of point you in that direction. And then, of course, you go back to this physical evidence, you know, that may or may not be connected with it. So it's really interesting. It's a fun story.
0: To this week's guest, Doug Kink Crispin, and thank you for joining me. I hope you'll join me again next week. Until then, bye.